feeling a little hoarse right now because I sang both services. Those are great songs, and I, I don't know how to control myself and keeping it down. So you're going to have to deal with kind of a hoarse voice. Well, uh, I wanted to share with you an experience I had last week or start off this way. Um, last weekend, my wife and daughter went down to Southern California to a cheer competition at Azusa Pacific. It was their little championship. I think it was a national championship. Um, I wasn't able to go because I was here, but I saw the pictures, and they were great, and they won first place, so I was proud even though I didn't get to see it firsthand. Uh, but that left me with my two boys at home. It was a man fest at our house, which was, which was really cool. Um, we turned our, our uh, family room into a veritable man cave. It was messy and dirty. My wife came home, <laughs> just wanted to thump me one, I think, because we had transformed it. Uh, we had some great uh, dietary food. We had um, brats off the barbie and right in some nice big buns and ketchup and mustard, and that was pretty much the two food groups of the weekend. <laughs> uh, we, had, uh, we watched man flicks, or boy flicks, actually, because my oldest is almost 13, my youngest is four and a half. Uh, we threw out our sleeping bags on the couch and on the, on the carpet and just had a good time as guys, you know. Uh, but my youngest, my youngest kept asking the entire weekend during this opportune premiere moment to experience mandom. <laughs> he, uh, he said, where's mommy? He said it all the time. Where's mommy? When's mommy going to come home? And I just wanted to shake him for a moment because I kind of felt like chopped liver. It's like, dude, this is like this once in a lifetime. It's just us right here. But he still asked it the rest of the time. And uh, when he found out that she was just about to get home, he was out on the curb waiting for her. You know, because his, his heart is so tied to his mom, I definitely play second fiddle in the family when it comes to our third And uh, it reminds me of when we came back from the Olympics, because there's no way a a four-and-a-half-year-old is going to sit through three hours of curling. You know, it's not (laughs) going to happen. He's going to be bouncing around and grabbing rocks and making a ruckus. Getting on TV, though, I'm sure. At any rate, um, we left him for eight days, and, um, and we got back after missing him for eight days, and we walked in the front door stood in the hall, and I could hear his little pitter patter of his feet, and you could hear him screaming at the top of his lungs. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Then I thought for a moment, this is my moment in the sun. I play first fiddle today. <laughs> and as he screamed, and the Sandberg family was taking care of him, and so they can witness that this is in fact the case, he screamed, Daddy, 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 and ran right past me. <laughs> and into his mom's arms. He was screaming, Daddy, but was really coming out of here and here was Mommy. And uh, he leapt into her arms, and he didn't want to go to anybody else. Because uh, first in his affection is his mom, and, and that's cool, you know. Um, and I look at that, and his, he's, he just thinks that she's the bomb, she's the everything, you know. Um, and what I get from that is, is a picture. It's, it's a picture of, I think, how the Lord desires us to relate to him. Is it the one thing we long for, the one thing we want to see more than anything else, the one thing that we enjoy, the one thing we find refuge and satisfaction in is the embrace of his love which is something that the, the men throughout the Bible experienced. They didn't just talk about the experience. Your love is better than life. We've said that phrase before, and we'll say it again. Or to be able to say, you know, there's nothing on he- in heaven that I desire or on earth more than you. Um, that is when it's experienced, that kind of embrace. That is the, what I would consider to be the sweet spot of the Christian life. That is something worth living for. When you know, not just here, but you know in your life, that God's love is better than life. That is the place to be, and when you're away from it, it's all you want to have back. 
And it's what I pray for and long for for everybody in this church family is for you to be able to know and say with confidence, conviction, honesty, and sincerity, I know that his love for me is better than life, that the love of Christ transcends all other loves. To be able to say with Paul, I would count all as lost in order that I might have him because he is the bomb. You know, he's the, the best thing in life. That's my desire. That's the greatest, I think, need in, in our congregation that will care for all of the other symptoms of, of life is to have a ravaging encounter and experience of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Then I want to talk this morning about something that keeps us from experiencing that. It's a, it's a threat. It's a danger. It's not only what keeps the unbeliever from experiencing and knowing and trusting in God, but it can also take a person who is a genuine believer and plunge them into the darkness. And that, of course, is the threat and the danger of, of this thing we call sin which many have just kind of flit away as if it's not a very big subject, but it is a, is a deep and toxic subject that has to be constantly dealt with, not in a pessimistic way, but in a way that leads to hope, um, that sin is the most dangerous thing that you have to your spiritual life and to experiencing the fullness of God in your life. Uh, it is like throwing dirt in the eye of your soul. It stings the conscience and it blinds you and takes away that first-hand encounter and experience of all that God is. Mind you, God's love is never removed from his child, but the experience of his love can be tarnished and can be deadened and numbed by our willful sin. It reminds me of, a, of, of those little particles. This is a little disgusting, but those particles that you find in a baby's diaper, we're still kind of fresh out of that stage. You know, you take a, a bucket of that stuff and throw it in a pool, and it'll suck all the water out, you know? That's what it's meant to do. It's supposed to suck the water out of the diaper, right? Well, that's kind of what sin does to the spiritual life is you can be going along living and have the bubbling living waters in your life experiencing and praising the Lord. And next thing you know, you find yourself so far away from the Lord. And it's because sin has entered in. You've allowed it to enter in and it's sucked you dry. You're wondering, I'm not experiencing what you're talking about anymore. I I can't even relate to David. Your love is better than life. And that's why. That's what it does. This morning we come to perhaps the greatest example in human history, at least biblical history, of someone who is so high being brought so low, and that is King David. Um, We have been, this is a four-part series called Back Against the Wall, and last week we looked at a Jewish king whose back was up against the wall, and pagan armies were coming against him. And, um, And this time we're looking at a different Jewish king, and this time what's forcing him against the ropes isn't the pagan army, it's or the threat of slaughter, it's, it's his own sin, his own vile wretchedness that has him up against the ropes. The same David who wrote Psalm 53, or 63, your love is better than life, the one who's called a king, a man after God's own heart, here we find him crushed, crushed by his own sinfulness. And ironically, he is someone who experienced firsthand the greatness of, of who Jesus is or who God is. Jesus hadn't come yet, but Jesus and God are the same. That brings us to Psalm 51. A man who once lived in the rivers of God's presence now is in the desert. The psalm opens up the little opening line there telling us that it is a psalm of David, King David, and then it gives us the historic reference point when it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
This is one of those events in, in human history that leave a lot of Christians going, wow, that's a man after God's own heart. Some of the most de- graphic descriptions of sin are found in that historic event, found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. God preserved two whole chapters to talk about David's sin. And you read it, and I read it this last week again, and I just found myself thinking, how could you do this to people? And that's, I think, how you're supposed to feel. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the scandal of what he did would far exceed any of the scandals that were repulsed by in the newspapers or in the media by politicians or pastors um, or golfers. And yet this is the king of Israel. This is a king who soared into the direct sunlight of God's love and knew it firsthand and now finds himself in the icy depths crushed by his own guilt and repulsed by who he is. And this psalm, he tells us or gives to us his confession. And I believe it's preserved for us for two primary reasons. One, to show just how amazing God's grace and mercy are. God could save David after he had abused power, manipulated people and systems, betrayed his friends and relationships, committed adultery, committed murder, not just one, but it seems a score of murders, covered it up, and worst of all, despised both the word of God and the grace of God. There's one point in the story when God says to him, I gave you everything, and I would have given you more if you had asked for it, but you didn't, you took it. So he despised the name of the Lord, which was his deepest sin. So one purpose of this is to show just the level and depth of God's love, but another purpose for it is to show people like us the way back, Um, the way back into the sunlight, back to the sweet spot of the Christian life. Now David's he takes us in two particular different directions. And now let me just stop for a second and, and acknowledge something. And that is some of you in here are going to feel David directly. That is right now you come to this room and you know your shame. You don't just know it mentally, you feel it. You've done things perhaps in the last six months or the last year that you're ashamed even to admit to yourself, much less anybody else, and you are a deeply broken person. You're going to feel this directly. But I think all of us should feel it directly. Because we have a way in the church of demonizing some sins and whitewashing others. Let me give you a couple examples just to show us that this psalm is for all of us. We would never think about putting arsenic or poison in a person's soup or food. which would kill them. Never do that. Never kill somebody. Never poison somebody. But we don't have a real hard time opening our lips against someone who has hurt us and poisoning the minds and people of God so that there is division. We no longer have no problem physically, or wouldn't want to physically poison, but to relationally poison people. Quite frankly, I think I would prefer arsenic to the poison of gossip and slander, because at least arsenic sends me to heaven. It isn't going to produce long-term suffering. But that, that particular poison is tearing God's people apart. We don't have a problem. Well, we do have a problem. Most of us would never even think about having a physical affair on our wife or our husband. 
and adultery. Yet it does happen more than you know. But we have less of a hard time committing it in our minds with the aid of a computer screen and a mouse. That most of us wouldn't walk by a person who's bloody and dying on the side of the road. We, we have enough compassion to help them because they're physically there. But we don't have as hard of a time allowing the neighbor who lives right next door to us float down the wide road of destruction to their eternal peril. That is to say, we have selected out some sins and said these are terrible. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of others have been whitewashed. And I think, quite frankly, let's cut through the self-righteous garbage and recognize that this psalm is for everybody here. The church of today has been paralyzed by her sin. She is up against the wall. And I think David, someone who has been there, shows us the way back. And he's going to take us in two directions, and both of these are absolutely necessary, and they must be in this particular order. To make it simple, it's the direction of faith and repentance. Nothing new to any of you, but I hope that as I unfold this, as David unfolds it in his psalm, that it will give you new light and new motivation. Faith and repentance is how we deal with our back up against the wall of our own vile mistakes failures, and so forth. The direction of faith would have us do this. Now let me put faith in a sentence. That we respond to sin in Christian life, that joy-killing, passion-diminishing sin, we respond to it by casting ourselves completely on the comprehensive supply of God's gracious love. Now let me say that again. Try and wrap your mind around it because there's some important words. This is what faith does when you're backed up against the wall and you're disgusted at yourself. That it casts itself completely, not just part of it, but all of it. All, my entire being and life, I cast myself in faith completely on the comprehensive sufficiency of God's gracious love. That's where it goes. You cast yourself on the love of God. That's what faith does. And that is the first and primary response. Verse 1. Just so you know, I think verse 1 is kind of the spring. And the rest of the passage flows out of it. That it is the beginning point, the root. It begins and says, In this state, in the bottom of a hole, crushed by his own guilt, alone, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. That's what he looks to first, Lord, in your mercy. Your mercy, which is according to your unfailing, never retracting, never diminishing, never quitting love. That's what I'm banking on. That's what I'm looking at. That's what I'm casting my soul and my life on is upon the nature of your unfailing love. Now let me at this point make two observations that I think I hope will orient you to how important unfailing love is in the scripture and to David, and it should be to us. That those two words that we have translated unfailing love translate one Hebrew word, which some of you are familiar with, called chesed. In my estimation, and the estimation of many, it is the singular most important word in the entire Bible as to how God relates to his people. It's translated here in the NIV, unfailing love. 
You need a couple words to translate it. It's so deep. The ESV translates it steadfast love. But it has to do with the gracious and merciful and compassionate character of God's love for his people. And it's kind of what, what Jonah was afraid of when he went to Nineveh. And he said, I don't want to go there and preach because I know you're a God of Hesed. Your love is compassionate and merciful and you're actually going to forgive those clowns. That's, that's the central, most, single most important word as it, in terms of God's relationship to us. The New Testament picks up the same idea but uses a different word, and it's the word grace. I don't think those two are different things. They are the same. When Paul says, for it is by, by grace that you have been saved, he's talking about this love that has always been, the unfailing, steadfast, gracious, and merciful love of God that he has always had for his people, and that's what produced the cross, and that's what gives the Spirit. So what David pleads for on, 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 the, uh, on the basis of is, is the same thing Paul looked to, the grace by grace and grace alone. I think you could retranslate verse 1, and I don't think David would have a hard time with it if you said, or Paul, if you said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing grace. That is the first response as he casts himself upon the gracious character of God's love. Grace, that's the only thing I have to bank on. That's it. And that is, I believe, the first and primary response of faith in any context, much more here with sin. The second observation is this, that here, this is the second king we've looked at with his back against the wall. And I want you to see that both of them respond exactly the same way and look to the same tower. Jehoshaphat is, is, is facing impending slaughter. And how does he respond? He calls out in a prayer of faith and he looks to what? He looks to the steadfast power of God's love. That's what they sang in the choir. Remember at the front of the armies when God came and delivered them is give thanks to the Lord. Your steadfast love endures forever. Here David is pressed also, but now it's not the pagan armies, it's his own sin, but he has the same response. He gets on his knees, he calls out in faith, and he casts himself on the same tower. He looks to the same thing. The steadfast love of God, the Lord be merciful. Jehoshaphat looks to the power of God's steadfast love, and here David looks to the mercy of God's steadfast love. But they have the same response, and they look to the same thing. You think maybe that is a monumental marker as to how Christians and all God's people should relate in all of their crises. Our first and primary response, regardless of circumstances or sin, is to cast ourselves upon the love of God. That's where he goes first. It's the primary place and the first place I think the Christian is to go. But I also want to point out, and this is the kind of the rest of the chapter, how he petitions for specific things. And all of these, I think, are to be understood of facets of God's unfailing love. So let me just kind of read really quickly the petitions. And I want you to connect them to God's steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Why? Steadfast love. Wash away all my iniquity. Why? Steadfast love. Cleanse me. Verse 2. Or verse 7. Cleanse me again. Verse 7, second part. Wash me. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. These are petitions that I think he's calling for God's love to lavish back upon him. 
Blot out all my iniquity, verse 9. Create in me, renew a steadfast spirit, verse 10. Do not cast me, do not take away the spirit. Restore to me the joy, grant me a willing spirit. Save me from blood guilt. I think that David is looking for God's gracious love, his steadfast love to do all of these things in his life. At the bottom of the pit... Nowhere to go, he looks up to God's steadfast love and says, Will you rain down me all these droplets? And they fall into three primary categories. Forgiveness, restoration, and the reestablishing of his joy. And as he, he prays that God's love would, of course, forgive him of all of this treachery that he has, this, this twisted heart, blot out, wash away, cleanse, cleanse, wash me, and so forth. That, those are all forgiveness kinds of words. So he's praying that God, of course, in his love would forgive him. But he doesn't stop there. And I think that's important. Or let me put it this way. He didn't pray for the, the basic forgiveness package. You know, you have basic cable or the premium, everything in it kind of plan. Please don't relate cable to what I'm saying here. David here is not just praying, Lord, just leave me at the forgiveness stage. But he goes on to pray that God's love not only would forgive sin, but create in me a pure heart again. Renew a steadfast spirit. He knew that something was off on the inside. He was twisted on the inside. It wasn't just his behavior that was wrong or bad choices of the mind. He was off inside. That's why he keeps talking about the heart and the spirit. He knows it comes from the inside. So create in me. He's looking for God to do a work within him. Renew. Restore. Grant me a willing spirit. In other words, don't just forgive me of my sin, but do a work in my heart to bring me back. Renew, recreate. And not just that, but then he also wants God's love to bring them to a place where his joy is back to where it was before. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice again. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Joy, joy, rejoice. It's a full package deal. He's not just praying that God would just take him halfway out of the pit. He's asking, God, would you forgive? And will you restore, recreate? And will you return me to that place where I'm back in the sun and I'm experiencing the direct light of your love and I'm able to say once again with integrity and sincerity, your love is better than life. He's asking for complete restoration. And he's trusting that God's love will do that. I mean, is God's love big enough and wide enough and deep enough? Not just to love you when things are going okay, but when you have fallen into some pretty gross pits of, of, of moral failure. This testifies that even David in this pit experience still has faith to trust that God's love was big enough and gracious enough to even bring him from the bottom right back up into the sunshine. That's what he's praying. And the Lord, as you know from the story, does grant him forgiveness and restores his joy. And he wrote psalms of praise after that experience. That, by the way, does not take away from the consequences of his actions. I told you there were two chapters given to describe the consequences of his adulteries and his manipulations and abuse of power. 
But then God saw fit to give another eight chapters after that to talk about the tsunami of devastation he caused his wife, his family, his kids, and his nation. But God did answer his prayer. That, my, my friends, the church is, is how faith responds when you find yourself sick by your own sin at the bottom of a pit is that we look first and foremost to the gracious and sufficient character of God's love. I know your love won't let me go, and I'm banking on that. I'm trusting in that. And you'll notice also in this, this, uh, this, this psalm, not only is he driven by his faith that God does love that way, but desire. You know, you hear, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's like he knows the best thing in the universe. He's tasted it. That's what he wants, and he can't live with the idea that he'll never have it again. Reminds me of a scene in the, the movie Notting Hill. I don't know if you saw it, but it's the one I remember most, and I think about the presence of God whenever I see it. Um, uh, Hugh Grant falls in love with Julia Roberts, and she's, I think, Anna Scott. She's a TV star. And he has a moment with her in which he absolutely is ravished, captivated, falls in love, but then he loses her. And he's confiding in his disreputable roommate, Spike. And he says, it's, it's like I've had love heroin, and I can never have it again. I, I, I've never taken drugs, but people say heroin is extremely addictive because of the euphoria it creates. When someone has tasted, really truly tasted sincerely, that God's love is better than life, the idea of never having it again, you'd rather die than not have it. So you hear him say, don't. Take me from your presence. So this psalm is filled with a desire to return and faith that God's love is sufficient to take him there. Do you believe that God's love is big enough, deep enough, and wide enough? If you cast yourself completely upon it, that it is comprehensive enough to actually lift you back into that place? That's, that's how David approached the issue of sin to get on your face and say, Lord, I want to return, and I'm trusting your love. Our response to, to our sinfulness is usually a fleshly one and tells us where our faith really is. We tend to, immediately after we know we've done something wrong, simply to fix it or to try to fix it. Well, I, I shouldn't do that again, so I'm going to seek out accountability with brothers to keep me from doing that again. Accountability has its place, but it's certainly not first place, and it will always fail if God is not the first place you go. Because it is an arrogant response to think that somehow some other human is going to keep you from sinning. But being filled and trusting in and wanting to be back in the embrace of God's love and trusting his love will take you there, that's an act of faith. There's nowhere else to turn. We don't turn to human means first. They have their place. But we turn in faith, in prayer, with a willing, seeking, desiring heart, God, take me by your love back to that place. Now, that's one half and the first part and the primary part, but there's also this repentance aspect in this chapter. Because David, just as on the one hand, he casts himself completely on the comprehensive sufficiency of God's love, also confesses the comprehensive sickness of his soul. So let me just break down what repentance looks like. 
I, as I've studied this, I realize this is probably the most descriptive picture of what real repentance looks like in the Bible. And I have picked up on several different aspects of what true repentance consists of. One aspect is that you own your own sin. David, right out of the chute, after he looks to the mercy and the unfailing love of God, he comes right out and owns his own sin. All these, you know, possessive pronouns blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. There's no deference or pointing fingers of blame at anybody else. He owns them outright. These are mine. I manipulated, I abused power, I covered it up, I killed people, I was selfish, I committed adultery, I despised your name and took advantage of your grace. These are my sins. That is, by and large, not the case with many of us, if I may be direct. If David was living in our time, he probably would have, well, maybe not knowing David, but he could have done what we do in our culture. Like, I don't know what in the world Bathsheba was doing on the top of the roof buck naked. I mean, she's got to take a little of the blame here. Who does that? Or, Lord, why did you make her so beautiful? You have a hand in this too. Or why did I have to go up on the roof precisely at that time when everybody else is away and her husband's away and she'd be naked? I mean, you could think of a, a thousand different justifications as to why he did what he did. He could say, you know what? I was the youngest of eight sons. I never got love for my father. (laughs) But he doesn't. This is my transgression, my sin. And your sin that you commit, whatever that corruption is, is yours and no one else's. Talked to a, a brother from this congregation some time ago who cheated on his wife and is still cheating on his wife, talked to him, and what he did when confronted with, this is not honoring to the Lord and you're walking away, his first response was to point the finger at his wife. If you only knew her. This is your decision. No amount of provocation on the part of anybody else justifies you sinning against the Lord. That's garbage. Until God's people realize that I have to take ownership for this decision, I can pin it on nobody else. Are you in a place where you're beginning to repent? Don't blame anybody else, your crabby husband or your, you know, wife, your angry kids or your overly domineering mother-in-law. Your sin is yours. That's what it does, my sin. But there's another aspect that shows that this is genuine repentance. He recognizes that his sin is fundamentally an offense, not against people, not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba, not against Joab, his general, not against the people of Israel, but his sin is fundamentally an offense against God. He says, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If each of us knew that in whatever way we are 
living in a manner outside of what God would have of us, if we knew that that was personally offensive, not just to Tom or Sally or Jerry, but to God himself, our whole approach to sin would take on a whole new seriousness and urgency. If you had in your mind, here's a picture, a gross one, that each time you willfully opened your mouth to poison the minds of another person, speaking unedifying words that you were hawking up a loogie and spitting on the cross, I think you probably think twice about it. But we're very horizontal and sociological in our understanding of sin. We think, oh, it just eh, hurt my wife a little bit, but not that big of a deal. Or here's another way of looking at it. Imagine someone coming up on Sunday morning with my son because he did something bad. And he looks at him and right in front of me just smacks him. My son starts crying. And the person who's just smacked my son looks at me and says, hey, man, this is between me and your son. It's It's not personal. That's my boy. It's personal. He's mine. And I'm really ticked off right now. I think David understood. When I sent Uriah, you have to read the story if you don't know the story, my, one of my leading strong men to be killed, and he carried his own note of doom. I was slapping around God's kids. What I did to Bathsheba, I slapped around God's kids, and God's saying, it's personal to me. And if we get what David gets here, he gets it in his heart, I offended you. That leads to real repentance, not just the sociological horizontal effects of what we do. It's fundamentally that we have, we have offended the Lord himself. So he takes ownership for his sin. He knows fundamentally it's an offense against God. He acknowledges that he deserves punishment. That's the second half of verse 4, so that you are proven right when you speak and justified when you judge. He knows that if God slammed down the gavel saying guilty and worthy of hell, that he would say, yes, you're true and you're right and just. Imagine just owning up to one's own guilt. A guy who runs over a little old lady at the side of a, a, a street because he's just slammed drunk. And he stands up before the jury says, you know, let's just stop this right now. I did it. Not only did I did it, but I fully accept whatever sentence you lay on me because I deserve it. That's what David's doing. Lord, the gavel falls. You're just in what you said. I stand condemned under your justice. So he's owned his own sin. He knows it's fundamentally against God. He accepts the justice of it. It's all part of repentance. But then he goes even further and acknowledges that the whole of his life has been broken by sin. Surely, verse 5, I was sinful at birth. And then he goes back even farther. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. At the moment, I was one cell with all of the DNA and chromosomes all intact. I was broken back then. I had a sinful, sinful impulse before I had consciousness. That, by the way, flies in the face of the idea that people are born basically good and are somehow corrupted by their environment. No, we're born with that impulse. David saying, I had these impulses when I was a child, back at birth, before birth. I am fundamentally corrupt. Fundamentally. 
Parker, we, we are not sinners because we sin. Though that could be said to be true as well. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is not just a choice of the mind. It's a condition of the soul. And that's what he's saying. And all of us have these same impulses, the same terrorist wanting to hijack your attitudes, your decisions, your life, your time. Just like David, it's there, wanting to drown you and destroy you. He acknowledged it was always there. Always there. So he, he, this is, you know, his confession is complete. He's not saying, hey, I was good some of the time, though. He's acknowledging from my birth I was twisted. From conception I was twisted. So he says his confession is full. His repentance is full. But there's one final thing that I think is really important to notice, and that is that he was also broken by it. Inwardly broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's the time when you are sincerely in your heart, you weep over your brokenness and what you've done. That there is a genuine sadness that overcomes your soul. That there is a sense that I I am not what people think that I am. I am a broken person, flawed person. And there is this inward remorse. And what makes that a godly remorse versus an ungodly remorse is he's taking ownership for his own sin. He knows fundamentally it's against God. He knows that sin is an impulse that is in the fabric of his being. And he has confessed it and now he is broken over it. This is a picture of what repentance looks like. And if God was to bring each and every one of us to this place of owning our own stuff, and agreeing with his judgment and knowing I have offended you and being broken over it, then that would, I think, be the first step towards seeing God blow the doors off this place. And I also think that it would alleviate and diminish much of the relational crisis that many people feel. We are so prone to pointing our, our, our finger at the sins and others that we never fully take ownership for our own and therefore lack humility and lack the sense that, you know what, I was sinful from conception. And we're so busy trying to take the speck out of our brother's eye that we forget that we have a log in our own. And as a result, conflict emerges. I, I, I just really firmly believe that if each person in here looked to their own life and heart and where they're at and took serious ownership of their own sin in the ways that I just said or David just said, knowing this is between you and God, you have offended him, take ownership for it and confess it and ask that he breaks you of it, um, then I think there would be so much healing that would happen in marriages and in, um, in the conflicts between friends. As I take ownership for my sin, and I, I will, that's where I'm going to spend most of my time. But not, that sounds pessimistic, but it's not. Because all the while, we are looking in hope. We're looking in hope, casting ourselves completely on the fact that God loves us. His love is big enough, merciful enough, deep enough, wide enough to carry us back in to the sunlight. So we repent in hope, in hope that we will rediscover what it's like to taste that the love of God, the love of Christ is better than life. 
So we look to the cross. We look to the place where God has, has loved us and where he has poured out his life for us. But I wanted to end. Those are the two ways of repentance here, is casting yourself upon the gracious love of God and coming completely clean in confession, comprehensive flaws of our lives. That's repentance. I would like to close this time in, in a time of question and answer prayer. I want to ask you some questions, and I want you to think about them and try and answer them for yourself. Then I'm going to ask you to pray, and then I will pray. First question, do you know where your shortcomings lie and where your sins are? Are you aware of them? And if you are, can you name them and put a name on them in your heart? Laziness, selfishness, domineering husband, sarcastic wife, rebellious and sensitive son or daughter, committed adultery on my wife. If I haven't, I've thought about it. Is that you? Have you poised the minds of another person regarding someone who's hurt you? Are you serving the Lord? You lied to your boss? Compromise your integrity? What is it? And just lay it out there for the Lord. Just got to get it. Lord, this is something that I know I have to deal with. Secondly, are, are you broken by it? Or are you tolerant of it? Are you broken by the fact that you're sitting between you and God and, and, and He's the one who is the deep the offended one that you have dishonored his name and, and so do you know it and are you broken over it and if not would you pray Lord will you break me bring me to my knees and my heart help me to know as David did that I am in desperate need of you and if it wasn't but for the grace of God I could not even stand here Pray that he breaks you. Pray that he brings you to that place of godly remorse and sorrow for your own sin. No one else is just yours. And now you ask the Lord in his immeasurable greatness of love, will you ask him, Lord, forgive, cleanse me, but also renew and recreate my inner life. Renew a right spirit in me. And not just that, but will you restore the crushed bones you've been broken and rejoice in me once again. Bring me full back into the sunlight of, of knowing firsthand your love is better than life. You pray that? And I encourage you to pray that not just this morning but tomorrow and the next day and the next day 
until God once again opens the windows of heaven and He brings you out of the cloud and fogs, clouds and fog of your own demise, back into the place where you know and taste and see that He is good. Lord, our eyes are on you. We confess that we can't even, of our own selves, our own strength, um, deliver ourselves from our own corrupted hearts. We know that you have given us a new heart in Christ, but that new heart is your heart. And so we look to you to strengthen us and to work in us, to break us of sin, but also to give us a deep, profound confidence and faith in the supremacy and the the comprehensiveness of your love. Let your love penetrate us again. We call out to you, O Lord. We look to the cross. We look to the place where love came down, the place where we come broken, but receiving the newness of your love. In Christ's name I pray. And all God's people.